This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in your podcast app. Well, I'm glad to see um, all of you here tonight. Um, I look forward to our conversation. I'm here with Lucy Fisher, uh, Distinguished Professor of English and Film Studies at uh, University of Pittsburgh. And uh, so let's go. It's a long movie, but I hope it will, you found it as worthwhile as we do. Mm-hmm. Um, so, Lucy, you've written about uh, Betty Davis mm-hmm. and aging and sisterhood fairly yeah. recently. Could you tell us just a bit, you don't have to go on for a long time, about both stars, Betty Davis and Joan Crawford, their star personas, um, their long-standing rivalries, their off-screen bitterness, just to get us in the mood to start yeah. talking about Baby Jane. Sure. Um, yeah, they contrast quite a bit. I mean, um, Betty Davis is born, I think, around 1908 in New England, so she kind of thinks of herself as a Yankee, you know. And she comes to Hollywood in 1930, first signed by Universal. She had been a stage actress, just beginning her career, really, on Broadway, but meeting with some success, and she was scouted by someone in Universal. There's this famous story of her coming to Hollywood to being to be met um, um, at the train by someone from Universal who walks right past her because she doesn't look like a starlet. You know, mm-hmm. she's a plain uh, Jane. Not that Jane, but... Um, anyway, um, and she goes on um, to actually move studios to Warner Brothers in 1932, and she stays at Warner Brothers until 1950. So she's identified very much with Warner Brothers Studio as an actress. Um, But her persona, she doesn't really have a single persona because she was known really um, not for being glamorous, um, but for being an actress, for really having talent as an actress, which is not always the case with movie stars. They're not always known for that, even though they may have particular screened ability. Um, And she played a wide variety of roles from... um, playing actresses, to playing secretaries, to playing gun malls, to playing queens. Um, and so the range of her roles. And she was also known for playing um, roles that other people wouldn't want to take, um, you know, roles of women who were completely unlikable. Um, her breakthrough movie was when uh, Warners loaned her to RKO in 1934 to play in a human bondage where she had a role, Mildred, um, that was a, you know, not at all a likable role. And she, in fact, um, you know, uh, was nominated for an Academy Award. She didn't get it. Um, so her persona was very much identified with acting, independent women, tough women. Uh, Joan Crawford, on the other hand, was much... She started out um, as a dancer. She was born in Texas, a more working-class kind of family than... Um, uh, Betty Davis, though Davis was not wealthy at all, um, and um, a dancer. And she, too, performed as a dancer on Broadway, but she came into film um, five years earlier than um, Betty Davis, but it was a significant five years because it was the silent cinema. Mm-hmm. Davis was one of those theater actresses plucked for the coming of sound because they didn't think that most silent film actors could act with dialogue. Um, 
Um, and uh, Crawford was known um, particularly in the f as a flapper, as a glamorous flapper in films like Our Modern Maidens, Our Dancing Daughters. But she did make a very successful transition to sound, unlike a lot of other movie um, actors of the period. She was identified with MGM. Um, that's where she started to work in 25, and she stayed there until, I think, 1943. That was the studio of glamour and beauty and lavish sets. And um, so that was her image. Not so much serious actress. Um, although when she, in 1943, she moves to Warner Brothers. So then she's with Betty Davis. They shared a joint, they had adjoining dressing rooms, but they were not friends. Um, and in, at Warner Brothers, she, you know, became more of a serious actress, got an Academy Award for Mildred Pierce. Mm -hmm. I for, forgot to mention that Betty Davis got two Academy Awards for, um, you know, for Jezebel and Dangerous and eight nominations over the years. Um, with uh, Crawford, it was only one, although she got two other nominations. Um, so different careers, one associated with fashion, glamour, the other an actor's actor. Their rivalry and dislike predates um, working together on um, Baby Jane. Um, it started at Warner Brothers um, in that they, there was some rivalry over who would get roles. You know, they were both actresses fighting for good roles. Um, there was some, uh, some thought, well, in, in 1936, when um, uh, Betty Davis was um, at the Academy Awards, and she wasn't really expecting the Academy Award for Dangerous. She did get it. Um, and she went in a very plain dress, nothing like what we think of today. And she accepted the award for Dangerous in this very, very plain dress. And evidently, Joan Crawford sort of mocked her publicly for being frumpy. That was not good. Um, and then um, there were other rivalries. Um, Betty Davis fell in love with French Tone, the actor she starred with in Dangerous. And Joan Crawford married French Tone, which wasn't good. Um, and then on Baby Jane, I mean, actually, Joan Crawford was the one who suggested Betty Davis for Baby Jane. Um, Robert Aldrich had brought the book to Joan Crawford, and then she wanted to appear in it and suggested Betty Davis. So, you know, she was willing to work with her. But then on the set, um, there were, you know, rumors of strife. There's, uh, who knows if all of this is true, but... There was um, talk that you know Joan Crawford was married to the CEO of Pepsi, so Betty Davis made sure that there were only Coke machines on the set. Um, Betty, when Joan Crawford had to be kind of dragged a bit by Betty Davis in one scene, supposedly Joan Crawford weighted her costume so that Betty Davis injured her back. Betty Davis then, when she was, had to beat. Joan Crawford, I mean, some of those scenes, she's obviously not beating her, but when she had to slap her face, she slapped it particularly hard. Uh, there, there was all of this. And then when they went on tour with the film, Joan Crawford refused um, to do the tour of various cities because she claimed Betty Davis took all the good ones. Then, of course, Betty Davis um, was nominated for an Academy Award as Best Actress mm -hmm. for... Baby Jane and Crawford wasn't. That was an, also a, a rivalry. Um, Anne Bancroft that year won for um, 
Oh, the one about the deaf. The miracle worker. Miracle worker. Um, and Anne Bancroft could not attend the Academy Award. She was making another film. But Joan Crawford managed to convince Anne Bancroft to let her accept the Academy Award. So Crawford accepts an Academy Award in the ceremony that Davis was nominated for, but didn't get. So, and recently, some of you may have seen, there was a TV series called Feud with Susan Sarandon and Jessica Lange playing the two um, actresses, all about their feud. Rob Aldrich and Betty Davis, in interviews, says there were never any open fights on the set. They say they were professionals, and also it was shot in something like 21 days. Davis says we didn't we didn't have any time. Right. So that's kind of an overview of. Very good. I think a little understated, but understood that there yeah. was deep. Yes. tension between them. Yeah, they've never had a good word to say about the other when asked. Yes, I, sure. I told you my favorite, my favorite lines is 10 years after Joan Crawford had passed away, uh, Betty Davis was being interviewed on some late night show and the moderator said, well, have you changed your mind after all this time about Joan Crawford? And she said, well, just because she's dead doesn't mean she changed. <laughs> Anyways, let's yeah. move on. The film has sometimes been associated with a camp aesthetic, mm -hmm. um, and Betty Davis in particular has been a, kind of heralded as a gay icon. Can you say more about these just briefly? Yeah. Well, camp, and here I'm using, you know, this sort of canonical article by Susan Sontag on uh, notes on camp. Camp's associated with excess, number one, and this is not a subtle film, as you may have noticed. <laughs> Um, so there's excess in terms of um, that. The other thing is that um, camp, I th I'm just pulling out the things that are relevant to this film, camp is, um, takes itself seriously but can't be taken seriously. And I think this is a film about someone who takes herself seriously but can't be taken seriously in the, in the uh, guise of, Baby Jane, who completely takes herself seriously, her comeback seriously, all of that. Um, also, um, one of the things um, about camp is that it's fascinated with the out-of-date. And I sort of think of it as the sort of pink flamingo syndrome, you know. And again, this is a film about the out-of-date. That's what it's about. Davis as gay icon, and this may be... Um, a gay icon of a certain generation. Um, you know, most of the, the men who have written books about her in this way are in their 60s or something like that. What they seem to like about, um, about Betty Davis is excess, um, that she's not a method actor, obviously. She, she makes fun of method acting like Laurence Olivier. Laurence Olivier used to say, can't they just act? You know, in other words, what do you need to get into a character? Um, so her, her mannerisms, the fact that she makes acting visible, um, she doesn't hide her mannerisms. There's that staccato delivery, her abrupt gestures, her, she's always playing with something. You know, um, there's never a moment when she's not fiddling with something. You know, she doesn't just sit there and say her lines. Um, she's not feminine in the kind of superficial classical notion. She's angular. She's, um, there's a kind of masculinity they see in her. She was a tough 
Cookie. They sometimes called her the fifth Warner Brother um, at because she was so tough in the studio. So there's her edginess, her uh, masculinity. There's the fact that she's nasty and she's always doing these one-liners. Um, in this film, you know, it's like, you know, but you are Blanche, right? You know, but you are in that chair, Blanche, or... Um, you know, just a minute, you big fat movie star, you know, or mockery, these nastiness mm. that appeals um, to uh, to them. Um, the, 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 also, the thing that she's always duplicitous in, not always, but often duplicitous in her roles. And um, that maybe appealed to the notion that in a certain generation, gay men had to be duplicitous about their lives. Here, she's listening in on the phone. She's forging her signature. Um, you know, all of those kinds of things that she's hiding. Well, as I said at the beginning, <clears throat> the film was released in 1962 mm -hmm. on Halloween, and its initial critical reception was not positive. Um, but it went on to receive five wow. Oscar nominations, including Davis for Best Actress, which she didn't win. It also recouped its costs in two weeks and grossed over $9 million at the U.S. box office. Amazing. So what, what do you think accounts for its popular and financial success? Yeah. Because I don't think that they thought that they were, this is what they had when they made the film. Yeah, the studios all turned it down, you know. I mean, Aldrich kind of said, they all said, who wants to make a film about two old broads? You know, that was kind of the, um, the attitude of the studios. So this was made... Um, you know, uh, basically, I mean, it was underwritten by Warners, but they wouldn't let them use the studio. They had to make it off-site. It was, I think, one million budget, 30 days. Um, you know, um, it was very hard to get it produced um, to begin with. Well, Halloween helped, right? Um, I looked at the poster for the film. The poster shows um, uh, Blanche opening up her um, dinner, and there's a rat on her plate. Okay, so I mean that already gets people sort of in the mood. There was a jingle that <laughs> not for dinner, but not for dinner, for but Halloween, yeah. for Halloween and horror. Um, Aldrich wrote a jingle that sort of that played, you know, on radios and stuff that sort of stressed bloody notions of the film. There was not only a trailer; there was a featurette that he shot, which is available on YouTube if anybody wants. To see it, there were you know there were those reasons, and then I think um, there there was curiosity. Let's face it: if you were of the age, let's mm -hmm. say, of Mrs. Um, Bates, Bates, mm -hmm. right? Um, you know, if you were of a certain age, you had really seen um, Crawford and Betty Davis and countless movies, and you you might have been curious to go and see what this was about. And then there was morbid curiosity, which is. I want to see these women who are such big shots torn down a peg having to appear in this god-awful movie. Because um, there's a lot of that. I think our fans are two-sided. We want to love them, but then we want them to, you know, fail on, on some level. And then there's the fact that if that horror film was coming into its own, the sort of art horror film, right, this Psycho in 60, and around that time, there was also Peeping Tom. Mm -hmm, 59, yeah. Right. And a few, um, uh, the Little Shop of Horrors, I think. So that was beginning to be a thing. Yeah. 
Well, the, you know, the film's temporal organization where it guides us from 1917 yeah. and then to 1934 and then to yesterday and then we're in the world of 1962. You know, clearly Aldrich is exploring American entertainment culture from vaudeville to the movies right. to television. So it's the film sequentially depicts Baby Jane's vaudeville act on the verge of World War One. Right. And the whole I've written a letter to Daddy. Blanche's classical Hollywood star turn in the early 30s and the rebroadcast of her most famous films on television in the 1960s. Film culture has been preserved and is now being shown on television. Right. Um, and Blanche's career is resurrected because of television. She gets fan mail and so on. Whereas Baby Jane's vaudeville career... Um, her success is remembered only in sheet music and the replica Big Doll, which most people don't remember. So I'm wondering if you'd speculate on, one, why Aldrich, he wants to trace this kind of history of American entertainment mm -hmm. forms and its recursiveness or what's preserved and what is lost. Yeah. Um, and, you know, what precipitates... We get a lot of explanations in the film of uh, uh, Jane's psychosis. Is it that these movies are being played on TV mm -hmm. and she's feeling more jealous? Or is it instead what we learn, too, is that she's known for four weeks that uh, Blanche is planning to sell the house? Right. Well, going to the division of the um, film, you know, that 1970, the beginning, the 1917, the 1930s, uh, four. Yeah. four and then um, 1962, I mean, it, it is um, entertainment. It's also, I think, a certain zeitgeist that they belong to, because I think of 1917, I mean, it's the era of silent film, right? And um, it's also the era of sentimentality. I mean, I wrote a letter, I've written a letter to Daddy, you know, in heaven. I mean, it's both sentimental and so unbelievably maudlin that you want to throw up. I mean... Yeah. Not, you know, not in Hallmark, not just Hallmark cards. It's like perverted sentimentalism, right. right? But it's sentimental. And so it's the era of, you know, Lillian Gish and sentimentality, which um, is out of date, mm -hmm. you know, in case people haven't noticed. <laughs> um, and then there's 36, which is kind of the era of Art Deco. And um, it's interesting that when she finds that photo of... Um, of uh, Blanche that's been crossed out. She's in a very deco outfit. Mm -hmm. um, it's glamour deco, not sentimentality anymore. It's, you know, the, the culmination of the new woman. And then, of course, you have 1962, which is, you know, a, some level of modernity at that period. But that's the moment at which both 1917 and 1936 are anachron. They're anachronisms and totally out of date, you know. So I think there's that, and then there also is, as you say, the different media that are. And I think the, the you mentioned preservation, which I think is is interesting because, of course, um, you know, theater generally wasn't until very recently preserved. Now they film everything, but um, film could be preserved. But of course, we know mm -hmm. that the studios threw out everything or most everything um so only a small percentage of films actually survived and then there was nitrate fires and water damage and but it could be preserved but then there's the question of you know um does a does a star like blanche want to see 
the image of herself preserved. She does. She enjoys it. And then, of course, Jane says, then you're an idiot, you know. But other stars don't. Like Maximilian Schell made this film about Marlene Dietrich in her 80s. Right. She, went, she didn't want to look at any of her films, and she refused to be filmed, you know. So there's that double edge yeah. of preservation, which is you have to watch, your, you have to look at yourself in the past. Um, and you and I talked about, yeah, did you just mention Million Dollar Movie? or Yes. Not? That when television needed stuff to fill the hours, then they turned to the studios, right? And the studios, the, the films that they still had in their libraries that weren't so valuable to them anymore became valuable as filler for television um, when television didn't have programming, you know, didn't have what we have, you know, now, which is a million channels and streaming of all sorts of stuff. So they filled it with reruns of movies and suddenly old films became valuable again. Yeah. I want to just shift a little bit to questions of genre here. And yeah. in fact, when, when you and I were uh, writing back and forth to each other, I mean, when I've taught this film, I often teach it in a genre course about melodrama mm -hmm. and horror and how the family melodrama always verges onto horror and how mm -hmm. horror is often uh, structured around melodrama. And you said, yeah, but here we also have the thriller at yeah, play. That's right. So with this, in, I mean, as many critics have argued, Aldrich's film is not really concerned with the question it poses. Nobody really cares whatever happened to baby Jane. I mean, mm -hmm. that's not the issue. Um, instead, it, it kind of explores the aging female mm -hmm. star and the kind of horror mm -hmm. uh, associated and then, of course, we have the family melodrama at play right. with the sisters, and then it's structured a lot like a thriller. Right. Um, so could you say a little bit more, uh, just briefly, because we'll continue to explore how these generic conventions are intertwined. I mean, even Joan Crawford as the long-suffering melodramatic heroine, right. who right. in the end is revealed to be actually be the sadist. Who's, right, yeah. All right. Um, yeah, so in, and in addition to the three you mentioned, there's elements of the gothic, right? Because we've got not exactly a mad woman in the attic, although she might be, but um, that we have the woman, you know, in the attic, the kind of um, captive woman in the attic in this, in this film, in a big old mansion, you know, not that sort of thing. We don't have the male um, villain, but we have, you know, the female villain. So there's also the gothic. Um, in terms of thriller, I think the, the, the big thing here is the editing of the sequences in which uh, Jane leaves the house, you know, and we, we constantly have that back and forth between Jane leaving the house and Blanche in the house, either figuring out how to cry for help or how to get out of the house or, you know, both. Um, and the editing is, is very important um, in those um, sequences. In terms of melodrama, I think it is complicated. Um, we have Blanche seems to be the long-suffering kind of melodramatic figure. Um, I think on some level, for me, there is melodrama attached to Jane also, because I think we feel sorry for her in a way. I mean, she's absolutely horrible and, you know, she's villainous, but she's pathetic. Um, and there's pathos, and of course, we don't get a chance at the end to really feel sorry for her because it's only at the end that it's revealed that perhaps the reason 
whatever happened to baby Jane is that her sister made her guilty for injuring her. That's what happened to baby Jane, right? But we, we only get that at the end, so we don't have any right, time. Right, but of course, then baby Jane didn't injure her. She injured yeah. herself in trying to, you know, injure baby Jane. Right, but she made her feel guilty. Well, for, you know, for decades. For decades, which is sort of maybe what really caused her mental right. illness. Um, but the family melodrama, I think, is, is really interesting. It's the, like you say, in, particularly in this period, I mean, there were always elements of perversity to the family melodrama, but in this era, it really starts turning, uh, you know, with Psycho. And um, here, um, first of all, I've written a letter to Daddy in heaven, and then um, there's another, there's other sheet music, some of which is also about Daddy. So all these uh, Baby Jane songs seem to be about Daddy. Um, and she's hung up on, she's still hung up on Daddy. I mean, so there's this sort of Oedipal thing. We did buy her thing. the house. Well, I'm we don't know that. Kidding. We don't know <laughs> that. It's, he either bought her the house or Blanche bought the house. Um, but, you know, Daddy, there's this is Oedipal thing. There's also the stage father, or the mm-hmm. stage mother. I mean, there's been abuse. You right. know, you, you're putting this kid out on the stage, and she is supporting the whole family. So that's not good. And then you have the sisters. Mm-hmm. And here's where the sis- sister rivalry, and here's where Betty Davis has played five or six roles of sisters of women, because, of course, you can be a sister of a man. And in many of those cases, in the majority, she has been the bad sister, um, starting with a film called To This Our Life, um, in 1942, and going up until the Wales of August with Lillian Gish in 1987. Um, and in one, two cases, she played twins and played both roles, the good sister and the bad sister, but the bad sister is always more interesting. So she's had this ability to sort of, for some reason, play sisters, and often in this rivalry. Um, so... I think that's an, another interesting kind of footnote to this particular mm-hmm. film. I also wanted to, you know, the part of the thriller aspect, you're right, yeah. I mean, and in, like, horror, you just, you can't believe that baby Jane gets back so soon. That the time, <laughs> there's just not enough right. time for her to even yeah. throw the note. Or, right. But, of course, communication, you know, so she's, you know, um, Blanche is an invalid, she's in a, confined to a wheelchair, right. and communication, there's the phone, and she pulls the phone out, and then, yeah. you know, she can't even type a letter, and in our age, the right. idea of being completely isolated, oh, no. so a lot of the, you know, the horror, the terror is yeah. no communication. Right. right, that's that's absolutely right, and that and that it plays for like the close up of the phone, the phone that's just that's a little zoom. too yeah, it's too far in the stairs. Yeah, and, the but how do you communicate when in this in this particular closed off world? Yeah, but the, we can shift to other families in the film. Oh yeah. So what do you make of Edwin and Delia? <laughs> um, why? Do you, how are they significant? Do you think to the film's narrative? This isn't. Uh, but I'll let you say more about yeah. Edwin. No, I mean, I think it, it fits into the perverted family <laughs> melodrama. I mean, they are another kind of um, perverse family. I mean, Ed, Edwin, you know, is this overgrown kind of baby. He's this, I don't know, late 30s, 40s guy. He's living at home. He's obviously this kind of failure at whatever he's trying to do. He's another person in the entertainment industry who's a failure. We've got, you know, three people now, you know, 
um, all sort of failed entertainers in this film. Um, and, you know, Delia babies him. You know, I mean, there's she pinches his cheek, you know, like your Uncle Sam does, um, and um, babies him all the time. And um, so he's he himself is a kind of pathetic um, figure. He has to have her call to pretend to be his secretary. Um, and contemporary critics see him as possibly gay, you know, and, and for that reason, well, for many reasons, not interested in Baby Jane. It's interesting that in when the film came out, there were coded words for that. So Bosley Crowther calls him epis, an epicene figure, which is, you know, blending male and female, you know, um, that sort of thing. So th- that family is meant to be also part of the... Um, and, and he's supposed to be a, a, a potential, ridiculous potential. Only in Baby Jane's eyes could he be a potential romantic interest. But it's clear that she sets her sights on him and is jealous that Blanche might steal him. So let's talk about the Bates family that lives next okay. door. Uh, clearly the family surname is a homage to Hitchcock, Psycho from 1960. Uh, released just two years before. But the Bates mother and daughter seem to represent a new generation Mm -hmm. and way of living. Their home is open and modern, um, in direct contrast to the Valentino abode, which is Italian Gothic style with with bars on the window and closed off to the world. But what do we make of the mother-daughter pair next door, especially Mm -hmm. when we know that Mrs. Bates' daughter is played by Barbara Merrill, who is... Betty Davis's first and only biological child. Right, with Gary Mel- Merrill, one of her many failed marriages, right, <laughs> ending in a very bad divorce. Um, I don't like them either, <laughs> to tell you the truth. Um, I think, number one, Mrs. Bates is like this nosy neighbor. She's, she seems to appear every single time that um, baby Jane walks out the door or drives her car. You know, so she's modern, but she's kind of hung up on, and she's both a a generic nosy neighbor, but she's also an obsessed fan, right? She's become, she she sort of says she was always um, a fan of Blanche Hudson, but now that she's seeing her films again on television, she becomes obsessed like a teenager, and Want, you know, wants her autograph, wants to beat her, brings her flowers. She can't take a hint. I mean, she's completely dense, you know. And then when Jane is rude to her, I mean, you know, after one encounter with Jane, you would never want to speak to your neighbor again. And, you know, finally she says, I'd like to kill her, you know. <laughs> yeah. um, as for Barbara Merrill, um, she gets to call her real mother ugly mm-hmm. <laughs> or something like that. And the two of them, you know, evidently had trouble together. Uh, Barbara Merrill wrote an expose of, you know, life with Betty. Um, Mommy, um, not Mommy Dearest, that's Joan Crawford's. Um, My Mother's Keeper is what it was called. And she wrote it while Davis was still alive. And it was very upsetting to Davis, whereas Joan Crawford's daughter wrote it after Crawford died. Um, But both of them, those two actresses, had these tell-alls by their daughters who hated them. Um, so that's just another kind of footnote to this film, but also their relationship, which is so, so strange. But they, I don't think they... And they're also another female 
dyad, right? There's, exactly. There are the two of them, the two women there, the modern women, but they're, you know, kind of gossipy and obsessed, and the two older women next door, you right. know. Right. So Henry Farrell, who wrote the original novel on which the film is based, represents the housekeeper as a middle-aged white woman. Mm -hmm. So Aldrich transformed the story by choosing actress Mady Norman to play this part as as an African-American with an active civic sensibility. Um, Now, Mady Norman graduated from uh, Bennett College with a degree in theater arts. She took an MA in theater and drama at Columbia University. She taught at Stanford and UCLA for over a decade. So Aldrich chose not just any black actress to play this part. Can you say more about the Elvira character, especially in relation to the larger theme of sisterhood in the film. Mm-hmm. Um, recall that Blanche wishes aloud that Elvira rather than Jane were her sister and that they plan to move out together. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's very, very interesting. I mean, what an incredible background and very atypical, I would think, at that time for any actor, mm-hmm. <laughs> black or white. Um, but first of all, Aldrich was a Hollywood liberal, but he came from a very conservative family, Republican family with ties to the Rockefellers. And then I think he kind of got radicalized in the Depression and became, you know, a supporter of Roosevelt. But eventually his, when he went into into the movies, his parents disowned him. And, you know, he never took any of their money. But, I mean, he was, you know, so it sort of makes sense that he might have an interest in doing this. I mean, we have to think, too, about the civil rights movement at this Mm -hmm. time. Um, there were already lunch counter demonstrations. There were freedom riders there. I think the University of Mississippi, they had been forced to take a black student. Um, and there, I think there had been also a Supreme Court decision that interstate vehicles had to be integrated. You know, so things were going on, you know, beginning to go on. I mean, Brown versus Board of Education, you know, had already happened, you know, almost a decade ago. Um, as far as Elvira goes, she is a very noteworthy character. Um, number one, you know, she's um, treated with such respect. She comes to the house, you know, dressed beautifully in a suit and, you know, high heels. And, you know, she doesn't, she doesn't come dressed as though she's going to be doing manual labor, actually. Um, and um, she um, does mention jury duty. Mm-hmm. You know, it's kind of a throwaway line. It's like, right. what well, didn't have to be in there that she's taking off to go to jury duty. You know, that's kind of a line probably editors would have said, cut it out. What's the, what's the point of that line? Um, but it is this sense that she could be on a jury. And, um, but she's also um, sharper than... <laughs> Anybody, you know, Blanche seems to be completely dense. We're playing dumb. I don't know which one, but she seems dense about um, Jane's motives, and 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 Elvira is the one who keeps saying she's sick. You got to do something about this woman. Um, so she's very, and she also risks her life. I mean, she and then I was struck this time in in watching it by she stands up to her employer, of course, to her, you know, regret if right. she lived long enough to regret it. But she just is like, you can't do this, and I'm going to report you. You know, that is not the way in 1962 most black employees acted to their bosses. Um, so it's a very, you know, very singular mm. portrayal. As far as Blanche goes in sisterhood, 
I'm a little more skeptical of that because, um, number one, you know, she is still her employee and she calls her Miss Blanche mm-hmm, and, mm-hmm. you know, Miss um, Jane. And yes, they would live together, but we know that Blanche, even before we know Blanche is a liar and has done terrible things, we know that Blanche is concerned with her own well-being and she needs um, Elvira to clean the house, to cook, mm-hmm. and to take her places. So they'll come move in with me. It's like move in with me and take care of me. Mm-hmm. Um, not, which is, I mean, what a good sister would do, but, okay. you know, she's not. And then um, the other thing that's interesting is that there is one scholar, Julia Stern, who's just, um, who a few years ago wrote a book on Betty Davis, who reading this film reads it much more radically in terms of race as a narrative of liberation from enslavement, but she means black slavery. And she reads it in terms of race. So she sees Betty Davis's uh, white face as stressing whiteness. She sees, um, uh, you know, um, Blanche's being tied up to that um, rack above her bed that she, you know she can pull as being like you know gagged like lynching, and she wants to see Elvira and um, Blanche literally as twins. You know, I, I'm not sure. Yeah, I agree. I buy that, um, but it's kind of interesting. Um, you know, that somebody will go. But Davis was evidently a liberal, and she, oh, Davis had qualms about the only person she kills in the film is a black person. She did have qualms about that, evidently. Um, and, and supposedly, according to Stern, she was supportive of black actors. So, Yeah. Well, let's talk more about the film's horror conventions. Um, okay. When asked what disturbed them most about this film, at least viewers don't cite the car accident scene, which I guess is not that horrific. It's a teaser at the beginning. Or the murder of Elvira, which we don't really, we don't mm-hmm. see, but we experience through mm-hmm. uh, Blanche's eyes. Or even Betty Davis's over-the-top depiction of uh, the way she can throw her voice to sound mm-hmm. like her sister. And I, I know this because, you know, th- these were kind of very creepy elements watching this as a teenager. But, you know, what really seems the most horrific is Jane's culinary torture of her mm-hmm. sister, with the first with the parrot and then with the rat. Mm-hmm. Um, why do you think this is the case, that the, that the yeah. horror is located there? Because there's so many horrific things that happen. Right, yeah. Um, I think, you know, the, hor- the horror element is, is um, kind of myriad and diverse in this film. Um, you know, first we have, you have to, you know, supposedly have to have a monster for horror. Um, some people argue it couldn't be human. Noel Carroll argues it can't be human, but people disagree. If there's a monster, it seems to be um, Jane, but, you know, maybe it's really Blanche by the end of the film. Um, in terms of the culinary, I think it has to do, horror ha- um, encourages both fear, which we've, you know, talked about with the um, thriller aspect but also disgust. Mm -hmm. And um, I think the culinary torture tunes into um, disgust, which um, has a lot to do with taste and smell. And those are things we associate with food. So 
being served. I mean, there's two things going on with the parrot. Number one, of course, is it's a pet. You know, we don't eat our pets. That gets into a taboo. Also, we don't eat our pets. You don't want to be served your pet dog. But there's also that we we eat birds all the time, fowl birds all the time, but we don't eat them feathered and beaked. You know, we don't eat them like that on a plate. So to see a bird like that on a plate, even beyond it being the pet, is disgusting. Um, The other thing is that um, uh, it it, it gets into the um, issue of filth Mm -hmm. and disgust. And I think rats, you know, there's rats in our basement. You know, it's usually filth. Rats are in sewers, right? So that eating a rat or a rat on your plate is mixing filth with food. Um, so there's that. Um, the thing about, um, I, did, you talk, did you mention the aging woman here or the aging woman and horror? Um, that here, um, it, because Jane is also the um, you know, aging figure of horror, it gets into the genre that, came to be known as Grand Dame Guignol or Hag Horror or um, there was Psycho Biddy movies. All right. So many words. So many words, yeah. yeah. But she had played um, aging figures previously. When she was 31, she played in a film called The Old Maid and also The the Life of um, Elizabeth and Essex, The Private Lives of Elizabeth and Essex playing Queen, the aged Queen Elizabeth. She was only 31. Here she's in her, you know, 50s. And um, she had, all, yeah, she had also played um, aging actresses, not horrific ones. In, of course, um, uh, the, well, one film, The Star, which was an aging um, movie actress, but all about Eve um, as well. But they weren't, they weren't horror films. Well, now Voyager, where she plays a dowdy yeah. right. spinster. Well, let's return to where we started for my mm-hmm. last question before we open up, um, and that is the star personas of, of Joan Crawford and Betty Davis. Yeah. While the film offers a brutal parable of the limits of sisterhood and the short shelf life and disposability mm-hmm. of celebrity, it also provides, I think, a powerful critique of the American family as a kind of toxic incubator mm-hmm. of female ambition. Um, in, in this way, it's like how the film's ending answers to its beginning. Mm-hmm. So in the beginning, we remember in the 1917 sequence when Jane demands ice cream. Um, in, the, in, the, in this earlier sequence, the mother tells the frustrated young Blanche, uh, who is jealous of her sister's success and the attention, right. she says, don't, you, don't worry, honey, one day you'll get all of the attention. And, of course, at the end, they're on the beach, and Jane gets, brings her ice cream. So we have this kind of motif that links the beginning right. and the ending. But that beginning sequence, at first you think, okay, we see the vaudeville routine, the right. kind of, as you said, kind of perverse daddy and daughter yeah. duo. And, and then the long-suffering mother who is identified with the other daughter who, who is, is also quite angry. Oh, she's yeah, definitely so angry. I yeah. won't forget. Yeah, that's it. She's, yeah. I mean, the minute that we see Blanche, um, she's, you know, in the wings, and she's looking very angry and upset. And then, yes, when her mother says, when you, when you are famous, don't forget, you know, about, yes. And she says, uh, believe me, I won't forget. You know, it's said in that. 
very angry way. So there's that return that, that I guess takes us to the fact that actually Blanche didn't forget um, and she actually punishes her sister in a major way by making her guilty for no reason. But th- there's one other thing in the beginning that I thought was um, interesting, and that is that it opens with this child frightened by a jack-in-the-box. Mm-hmm. And, you know, who is that girl? She's nobody. She's not in the film. I mean, she's not. she's in the film, but she's not in the narrative. And it seems to me... In an interesting way. I mean, it's it's a scene of a fair, you know, at which um, things are happening. But um, it's you cut from um, the um, scene of her crying, upset with the jack in the box, you know, frightened, to what we're going to get the vaudeville, you know, sentimental scene of Baby Jane. And I think it it sort of also um, uh, forecasts that what we're going to see is a kind of frightening mm-hmm. film that mixes up this sentimentality. The other thing is um, that the jack-in-the-box is like something buried comes out. Mm-hmm. It's like the return of the repressed, you know. On some level, this whole film is about that mm-hmm. in some ways. So in that sense, it circles back. The, the, the last thing is that, of course, at the end, Jane truly reverts to childhood. I mean, her insanity has gone. She's now murdered someone, which has completely thrown her over the edge. And now she's playing with children. She's playing ball with children. She's building sand castles. And she buys the ice cream cones and doesn't think to pay, just like a child right. who doesn't have money. So she really is a child, you know, at the end. So I, I think you're right that it, it circles, yeah. circles back. Well, please join me in thanking Lucy Fisher for being here tonight. Thank you. Thank you for inviting me. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.